Welcome to the podcast of Wiser, Women in Surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. For this episode, Wiser founders Carolyn Coleman and Vivian Wang sat down to interview Dr. Shanita Johnson at the 2019 Georgia Chapter Annual American College of Surgeons meeting at St. Simons Island. Dr. Johnson is a woman of many titles, Associate Professor of Surgery, Director of the Minimally Invasive and Bariatric Surgery Program, and Residency Associate Program Director at Morehouse School of Medicine. She makes a very compelling case for both bariatric and robotic surgery, and she stresses the importance of mentorship and persistence. But first, we explore her educational background and her path to surgery. So I'm originally from the Bahamas, so I was born and raised in Nassau, Bahamas, and I came here for college. So I went to Johns Hopkins for my undergraduate degree, which is in neuroscience. At that point, I thought I was going to be a neurosurgeon. I knew very early that I was going to be a doctor, and I knew I had a leaning towards surgery. Uh, I went to medical school in California, in Southern California at Loma Linda, and during my third year, that's when I realized neurosurgery was not for me, but I still love surgery. And the first time I got a scalpel in my hand, I knew that this was a fit. And so I did my general surgery residency at Howard University, and then I finished up with my training with a minimally invasive and bariatric fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. You know, I come from a family of educators. So uh, my father is a university professor, my mom is a high school teacher, so it's all we really knew was education and that was expected. My family is very heavy on the science side, so my father teaches genetics, botany, and those things, and my mom is a biology and marine biology teacher. Uh, So uh, we lean very heavily towards the sciences in my family. I was the first doctor uh, in my family, but I did have a lot of mentors, especially in my college years, as I um, did summer jobs and internships and looking for opportunities to be exposed to the field of medicine. I developed quite a few role models and mentors during that period. So how did you choose to do minimally invasive surgery and then bariatric surgery? So once I realized neurosurgery was not for me, the field of surgery was sort of wide open. What really drew me into bariatric surgery is the change you're able to make in a patient's life. So there are very few areas that can make such an immediate change. I think of transplant surgery as one. You give someone back a new lease on life, and bariatric surgery is another. So I have patients who are no longer diabetics, that are running marathons, that are personal trainers, that have started new businesses, that started new lives, and you never get tired of that. You know, I, I no longer have to check my blood sugars Amen. You don't have to stick your fingers anymore. This is great. You know, you celebrate with them. I don't need a CPAP machine. I no longer have sleep apnea. You know, I'm going to be around for my son's wedding or my daughter's graduation. I'm able to fly, you know, for the first time. So these, these small and large milestones are really what keeps me in the field. And the other thing is I love the surgeries themselves. So I love the complexity of it. I love being able to decide what's the best surgery for a patient with that patient and have different options. It's not a cholecystectomy for everybody. You know, there are different options that we can offer a patient and and tailor it to them. So you've really been 
pretty active in the bariatric surgery world. And it sounds like um, you've really headed up the program at Morehouse. Tell us more about the opportunities that your current job gave you and what you're excited about with your, your next steps in your career. So when I joined Morehouse, my reason for joining and mandate was to begin minimally invasive surgery there. And I really have taken that and expanded it. So we did start a minimally invasive and bariatric program. I have a partner, uh, Dr. Larry Hobson, that you know, two of us are the bariatric surgeons at Morehouse. We also um, begun a simulation testing center and training center, and then started a robotic surgery program at Grady, uh, all within the same three or four year time frame. Um, because it was important to me that, one, the patients have access to this level of care and this uh, expanded type of care, that they have access to shorter hospital times, decreased pain, you know, all of the benefits that minimally invasive surgery offers. So that was important to start a robotic program and a minimally invasive program. And then also residents. You have to be exposed to this. You have to know what the different modalities are. Um, when you're looking at what you want to do as far as the rest of your career, you need to know there's open approaches to surgery, there's laparoscopic approaches, there's robotic approaches, and be pretty facile with each of them. You can decide what you want to do with your career, but you need to have the options. And so we've been pretty busy mm -hmm. in the past few years, but it's, it's been very gratifying to me. I'm a person that enjoys having a vision and you know getting it through to fruition and to see these programs mature has been phenomenal. Our residents are now graduating certified in robotics and uh, they're excited to have this opportunity you know, to train in it. What are some of the challenges coming with starting and leading a program like that? Because, I mean, separate from the medical side of it, there has to be the systemic side of just the regulatory things and working in a large institution like Grady and um, what, what, are, what have your challenges been and lessons learned? A life lesson is that not everybody's going to be on your side or have the same vision as you. And, you know, it really takes a lot to convince an organization and to convince the powers that be that this is the right step for that institution. And so it meant a lot of leadership skills and pulling together a very large multidisciplinary committee, you know, involving administration, involving both institutions, Emory and Morehouse, uh, involving facilities and information technology and risk management and multiple different areas uh, to make sure that this was successful. And so we actually started the process in May of 2016. We got the robot in December and did our first case in February, which is a bit of an aggressive uh, time frame, but it's a surgical time frame. That's how we do things in surgery. <laughs> and it's been successful. It's a very successful program that has been touted around the country. We've presented both nationally and internationally on the successful implementation and the outcomes of the program. But it has been a great lesson in leadership also and really honing those skills. And I've taken it a step further and I'm also doing an MBA uh, for physicians. So I will graduate in May uh, with an executive MBA. It is a full-time program and I'm a full-time physician. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's quite, a, quite a commitment, but it has definitely been worth it. The leadership skills I'm learning, the financial skills I'm attaining, uh, even entrepreneurial skills, 
um, the list goes on and on. Learning the culture of an organization. We mentioned, you know, changing an organization is tough. You have to first understand the culture and then how to approach it. What's the best way to, to get what you want out of the program and to convince others that this is a shared vision of all. And something you touched on was how important it is to give uh, patients access to these procedures that you're doing now. And you've practiced in really different geographies from the Northeast to California to the South now. What have you noticed in the differences in those patient populations through a surgical lens? And how do you see the patient in Atlanta, or the patients in Atlanta sort of meeting your goals career-wise? Grady is a very unique hospital in that it, it's a safety net hospital, the largest in the Southeast, I believe. And so we have a very large population of patients that would not have had the financial or insurance ability to, to have these procedures done robotically or maybe even minimally invasively. And so in, you know, being able to offer these patients that access to care and have them leave the hospital 10 days sooner you know, with very small incisions, there's very little risk of wound infections and other complications, very, very little risk of bleeding and needing a blood transfusion. Those benefits to the entire system, the hospital, the counties that support the hospital, the taxpayers, those benefits are huge in addition to the patient benefits. Access to care in Georgia is special because we are one of only six states in the United States that does not have state employee coverage for bariatric surgery. And so bus drivers, teachers do not have access to bariatric surgery. Now, 30 plus percent of the population in Georgia is obese, and these patients are excluded from coverage and may not be able to cover that out of pocket. The cost of bariatric surgery range between about nine or ten thousand dollars up to about twenty thousand dollars that's significant you know for a teacher for a bus driver for most people um, to be able to afford and so we have been working with the georgia chapter of the american society of metabolic and bariatric surgery we have been working to get coverage for state employees and that's some of what we discussed at our meeting today we had obesity day here um, and we discussed with some of our representatives who are here uh, senators, uh, House representatives, we discuss how do we get access to care for our state employees uh, so that they can have, have use of these benefits, that they can no longer be diabetic and hypertensive and be there for their kids' graduation. You also talked about the role of robotics in bariatric surgery today during a session. What were some of the highlights? Robotic surgery has been around for about 20 years. And general surgery was one of the last surgical specialties to really adopt it, but it has been the fastest adopter of all of the subspecialties. And bariatric surgery, I think, has been leading the way because it is really um, almost made for bariatric surgery. We do a lot of anastomoses, really delicate anastomoses, and these are able to be sutured with 10 times magnification and with wristed instruments and tremor reduction and 3D vision. And so that allows for, um, I think, a better dissection, better exposure, and the studies that I presented today show better outcomes. So decreased chances of complications, strictures, leaks. Uh, and of course, this will lead to financial gains, less time in the hospital, 
shorter um, return to work, you know, less pain, and this is the time of the opiate crisis. You know, so if we can do anything to minimize that, uh, we should, and robotics is, is definitely a way we can do that. There's a lot of bariatric surgeons that argue that the cost of adopting robotics and the length of time then to dock and everything will, is just not worth it because they're so efficient and able to do it laparoscopically. What do you tell them? So I think the hardest people to convert to robotic surgery are the very good laparoscopic surgeons because of what you just said. They've been doing it so well for so long that it's, it's tough for them to take the time to actually train. And so converting them can be tough. And my partner is one of them. And he is now a robotic surgeon and truly believes in it. <laughs> I think once you actually get on the system, you find that your operative times initially are longer because you're learning and you have to go through that learning curve. However, you find that your operative times get down to your laparoscopic times and may even be less. I'm faster robotically. My hernia repairs are faster. My sleeves are faster, the bypasses because I have added exposure, I have an additional working hand, I now have three hands to work with instead of two, and which surgeon doesn't want additional hands? I have my own hands, I'm operating my own camera, uh, so I'm faster. As far as costs, uh, we measure operating room costs by the minute, you know, in the operating room. So initially, your costs may be higher as your operating room times are longer, but as you get faster, the times do come down. But there's no way to mitigate the cost savings from length of stay savings. You know, your, your patient leaving two, three, four days earlier may save the hospital five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000. You know, so there's no way that um, when you add in all those costs, it's not cheaper now to go robotically. Uh, I think what helps to get those folks that are a little reticent to, to train is knowing that it's a supported program. So our program is very hands-on. Uh, committee meetings are open to all surgeons that are trained to come to voice their concerns. We meet very, very regularly, um, every month, really. Uh, we have support folk. Um, the operating room leadership is very supportive. The administrative is, administration is supportive. And so you feel like you have the support you need to be successful that we're not gonna take the training wheels off and just let you fly by yourself and you're not comfortable. And that's really important because we're training as well. And so we have to make that environment as safe as possible for the patient and for the resident and for the student. And so we've had several folks that said, oh, that's not for me, turn around and say, it is for me and I'm going to, I'm gonna get trained on it. So we've talked a bit on our Wiser podcast about the inherent differences between women and men and thus how we face some slightly different challenges when it comes to progressing in the world of surgery, simply because surgery is historically a man's world and so thus designed for a man to move up in his career as opposed to the way a woman might naturally want to move up in her career. And certainly most uh, surgeons 50 years ago were educated white men and not women or minorities. Obviously that's changed and we're slowly starting to see the culture of surgery change as well. Um, but um, what about it from your point of view where you're both a woman and a minority, 
Um, I think a lot of us, both women and men, were sort of unaware of the differences in challenges that we face until we look back and have that uh, retrospective look. As a woman, we tend not to speak up, and we need to. You know, one of the things that um, stuck with me was if you don't speak up, you know, what's being missed? You know, and I say that to my residents. If you see something and you don't speak up, what's being missed? So we have to learn to speak up. We have to learn to acknowledge who's in the room. And a very good friend of mine says she will often repeat when another woman has said to affirm it, you know, because sometimes you may speak and it feels like nobody heard you. Mm -hmm. And so if another woman recognizes that, then to say, oh, Vivian, I like what you said there about X, Y, and Z, to reaffirm it. Uh, and so I think learning has been my, my best thing that I've done to help me with inherent biases. I tell my mentees that you need to have determination and persistence. When I was at Hopkins, I wanted to do uh, neuroscience research. And I must have written to about 30 labs. And I just kept writing to ask if I could be in their lab so that I could learn. Just keep going, just keep knocking on the door. A door will open, if only because of your persistence, but it will open. When I came to college and I was leaving another country to come here, my mother said to me, you need three things. She said, you need adaptability, adaptability, and adaptability. And she's been right. That's held me through my career. Things are going to change, and they may change quickly. Sometimes that means I need to take a step back, look at the situation, figure it out in my own head, and then reassess it. That might be the introverted side. And the extroverted side just speaks, you know, but you may need to um, look at yourself a little bit more. Uh, and just, you need tenacity, especially in medicine. You need it. You need that tenacity for yourself, but also for your patients. And I think as women, that tenacity for our patients, we have no issues with showing that. We will go to bat for our patients. Then why not also go to bat for ourselves, for our fellow uh, female physicians and surgeons, we must do the same. I think that women, if they get turned down from 30 labs, we tend to internalize it more than men do and start to doubt ourselves and our abilities um, because we tend to be more introspective than men. So we'll, we'll take that as feedback saying, okay, there must be something wrong with me. How do you balance that? Because I do think it is important to have that introspective aspect where you realize, okay, here are my deficiencies, but also not lose confidence in yourself and thus go out there and undersell yourself because you don't think you're, you're clinically as good as this other person who's a man. You have to see the bigger picture. You can't get bogged down by the little details. And you have to also keep yourself involved in other areas. You know, so if you're just focused on this one area, I need to get in a research lab, then you're missing how well you're being a role model to somebody else. And you may miss that that person has now become a physician, you know, because you're bogged down on this one little area of your life. We're multifaceted, and that's, that's inherent in women. We're multifaceted. We can have a lot of things juggling at the same time, but we need to make sure that one 
or the other is not pervasive and takes over your entire life. And that's difficult. I think it takes practice. I think it also takes a good inner circle to say, hey, pull yourself out of that. This is in no way defines who you are. And sometimes, you know, you'll look back at your CV and go, oh, why was I in a funk yesterday? <laughs> you know, you forget. You, it, and it's, it's a good thing to be humble, but you also need to remember what makes you you and what you have to offer. I think you're touching on so many important parts of that professional development you mentioned, the, the sure sense of self and tenacity and resilience in the face of maybe getting no's and um, just really being rooted in, in yourself. Um, and in a community that, or in a medical system that doesn't really have that formal professional development as part of our education, like I'm in my last year of medical school and there's really been very little formal professional development in that arena. I think the way that our profession fills that void though is mentorship. And for women that don't go out and seek that or don't have that community surrounding them, I think it can be really difficult to, to learn those things and in a different way that maybe like different genders have that community or those connections really easily accessible to them. Morehouse is very deliberate with their mentorship and so every resident is paired with a mentor. Students have mentors when they start medical school, they have mentors on the rotations uh, and then the faculty, we form our own mentorship um, relationships. So they are very, very um, definite about making sure that we have mentorship involved. But there are many ways to develop that mentorship, even as a student. And one thing about tapping into your mentors, you want to not just ask, but also bring something to the table. You know, So it might be your vivacious personality. It might be we can work together on some research. Uh, you know, I see this in you, can I help with X, Y, and Z? And just being available, affable, you know, when you're, when you're meeting these folks. But there's so many societies that um, you have the opportunity to develop mentorship with. You know, truthfully, we don't have a lot of time to do it. There's so much to learn in medicine. But we need to be well-rounded, you know, so how do we balance that? You know, I didn't learn any of this business of medicine or the leadership until after my training, after all of it. Uh, and I started doing more administrative roles, becoming chief of surgery. And, you know, when I started uh, doing those leadership roles, it piqued that interest in me. I wish I knew it before. You know, maybe your career would have been further along, maybe not, I don't know. You know, but it's great that you guys are looking at it now. And I think. It is going to be a part of medical education. It just takes a while to get things in, but it's going to be there. It has to be there. In life beyond surgery, what are some of your hobbies and interests? Oh, I have a lot. So I love to travel. And um, so this year, I've been able to go to Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Japan, Hawaii, some of them for work some of them for pleasure, um, but I love experiencing new cultures and traveling. I love mentorship. Um, I have a foundation. We send kids to school in the Bahamas. We also mentor young folks that are interested in professional science careers, so I do love that. Uh, music, I don't even have a genre of music. I love all music, live entertainment. If there's a Broadway show going, I will go. <laughs> What's the name of your foundation? It's actually named in my name, so it's very easy to find. <laughs> what accomplishment are you most proud of, either work or outside of work? 
Well, I actually just last week found out that I'm a part of the, I've been selected to be part of Outstanding Atlanta. So they selected 10 leaders in the city and I will be honored next month as um, part of that class for both professional and community service. Congratulations, Thank that's you. awesome. <laughs> and then I think my other accomplishment is I'm an awesome aunt <laughs> to my nieces and nephews. So I really take that seriously. And uh, they're actually here with me. Some of them are here with me uh, for the meeting. What's the most important attribute that you think a surgeon needs? I think it's that tenacity and adaptability. You know, there's going to be ups and downs. There's always going to be ups and downs. Try to ride them out, you know. Try not to be too high on the ups and too low on the, on the downs because it's part of life. Mm -hmm. But remember why you went into medicine in the first place. You went into medicine to make a change. You're a leader. As soon as you walk in the doors of medical school, you are a leader. And, um, you know, take that seriously. You know, lead your community um, well. What's the best piece of advice you received as a medical trainee? We were just about to leave medical school. We had maybe a week before graduation. We were all brought into this big auditorium and they told us, you're gonna make a mistake at some point. We were all shocked. <laughs> we were like, you're gonna make a mistake because you're human. Yeah, and that stuck with me. What advice would you give to young aspiring surgeons today? Find a mentor. And more than find a mentor, find several mentors, you know, because no one, no one person is going to encompass everything. And you yourself have so many facets to you that you're not going to match completely to one person or the other. So find several mentors. Um, even with that, you don't have to listen to everything they say because it's their life and their experiences which may not really correlate with yours, but there is something that you can take away from that person. And so you may need that mentor for this one specific area of your life, uh, but definitely make sure that you find a mentor. You need that tenacity. You just need to ask questions and, you know, don't be afraid of people saying no or that door closing. I think if the door closes, it was never meant to be, and I'm thankful because it might have been a mistake. And wait for the next one or move forward. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support and we hope to hear from you soon.